everybody. Welcome back to Grey Malkin Lane, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Except when we take more modern books that are set in the 60s like we are today, we're going to be reviewing X-Men Spider-Man number one, which is a Christos Gage book from 2009, featuring our favorite Dom Leather Daddy, Craven the Hunter. <laughs> <laughs> we, will, we will get to all of that in just a minute. I am thrilled to welcome my friend Steve Fox back to the podcast. I am thrilled to feature the wonderful artist Jason Muir. And uh, I am especially excited to uh, to welcome someone whose name has been brought up on this show multiple times, uh, uh, Miss Sarah Brunstad. I'll have you each uh, introduce yourselves. Let us know your gender pronouns, where we might know you from, share you know, a little bit of your, your professional work. And uh, the question for intro today is, what's the sexiest costume you've ever worn? In honor of Craven the Hunter, of course. Uh, so let's go in the order of Sarah, Steve, and then Jason. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Uh, very excited to be here. Um, yeah, so I am an editor uh, at Marvel Comics, and I work on uh, actually a, a bunch of different titles. Um, most editors are really centered in one office, but I do a bunch of different things. Um, so I edit Captain Marvel, uh, a few X-Men books like um, Rogue and Gambit, Captain Britain, uh, and then I also edit the 20th Century uh, Fox properties. So I do Alien and Predator and uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, the sexiest costume I've ever worn. <laughs> I don't wear sexy costumes. <laughs> um, it's not, yeah, it's not a thing. I did, I dressed as Tank Girl for a Comic-Con. The only time that I've ever done cosplay was as Tank Girl. And I guess that's pretty sexy. I mean, I think she's sexy. Um, but no one recognized me. So it was kind of a bummer. <laughs> Sarah, thank you for being here. Let's go to Steve next. Yes, hello. I'm excited to be back. Uh, my name is Steve Fox. Uh, pronouns are he, him. I am a writer and editor who you might know from stuff like X-Men 92, House of 92, uh, the Spider-Ham books at Scholastic, uh, upcoming X-Men Annual in December that I'm really excited about for all the Firestar haters out there to, to <laughs> give, me, give me a piece of their mind on Twitter. Um, and I also edit stuff like Department of Truth at Image Comics um, and a number of titles at First Second. I, I stay busy um, and gratefully so. As far as sexy outfits, um, I, it, because of my age at the time, I'll say racy outfit. Um, in high school, well, looking back, it is wild that uh, I hosted a variety show once, like my junior year. And a bunch of the girls did a Chicago number, the like um, pop six, six squish or whatever that is and then uh, i came uh, cicero out Lipschitz. yeah and i came out in in fishnets and a top hat afterwards as part of my hosting duties and i don't know what it says about me that that's the last time i can think of like a racy outfit i wore but uh it's all that comes to mind for the last 30 some years <laughs> and then uh finally jason uh yeah i'm jason Muir. he him um you would know me i'm the uh, artist and co-creator i did a couple books i did a book called um Voracious at Action Lab uh, that was written by Mark Sanasso, who was a former guest on the show a couple times, I know. Um, we did that book. Uh, it ran three volumes. We wrapped that up. And then right now we're uh, doing By the Horns uh, through Scout Comics. So um, same team. It was uh, Mark San and I. And then um, our original colorist, Andre, he did the first arc of the book. And uh, we're currently on the second arc of the book. And uh, Andre took a step back from the book. And we have a new colorist named uh, Steve Cannon. He's on the book now, and uh, we're about uh, six issues into the uh, second arc right now. I just picked up issue six yesterday. It was new comic day. Yes. 
Yes, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, and uh, sexiest costume. <clears throat> a couple Halloweens ago, I was um, sexy Jeff Goldblum from uh, Jurassic Park with the uh, <laughs> with the open shirt, Oops. you know. Um, and I had to do like a photo shoot. We were gonna go to a Christmas or a Halloween party, and I had to do the photo shoot on the couch beforehand. But then when I got to the party, uh, totally coincidentally, um, like two of our best friends, a husband and wife, they were um, Alan Grant and Ellie Sadler, <laughs> too. <laughs> Remarkably, and they had a little uh, son at the time, and he um, he was a little dinosaur. So it was an amazing coincidence. We were so excited. Uh, lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I use he/him pronouns. I'm a former Marvel. For, I always struggle with this phrase. Former Marvel Comics handbook writer, uh, uh, a novelist, a documentarian. I um, I host this show, so you guys know me from that. I, uh, the sexiest costume I ever wore. I think I brought this up on the show once before in a different conversation. I went to a Halloween party. I think I was the youngest person there by 20 years. And I had like a sexy cop outfit on. It was like a, it was like a vest with a star on it and like shorts and boots and a hat. And that was it. And I won like the sexiest costume award. And I was like, mm -hmm, look at me. But really I, I was, I was the youngest there by like 20 years. Which is <laughs> it was, uh, it was quite the honor. Uh, Craven the Hunter and all of the gay men who lust after him and, and women uh, will be uh, appreciative of this question. Um, so I'm really happy to welcome uh, each of you to the show. Uh, Sarah, I want to start with you today. You, uh, your name has come up on my show, I think, probably 12 times. I try really hard to give uh, representative voices. Uh, we're interviewing people from all over the comics industry. Uh, uh, and uh, we're using uh, this platform, hopefully, to amplify a lot of uh, female and queer and trans writers. And you are known, uh, at least to me, as someone who really pushes hard to make sure there are diverse voices in uh, creators in comics, which is something that is so crucial. Uh, whenever I hear your name, it is always with utmost respect and, uh, and honor. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, when I emailed you and I heard back, I'm like, yay. It's so, it's really wonderful to have you here. Uh, let's begin there. Are you willing to talk to us a little bit about the need for diversity in our creative teams? Sure. Yeah. Um, and it is really a passion for me, uh, from the very beginning since I came in and, you know, I'll, I'll say that I, th I think it's a passion for a lot of people at Marvel. Um, the younger crew, uh, pretty much all of the junior editors, um, you know, at, at Marvel, it's a little different than regular publishing companies where like most of the staff is female. Um, at Marvel, it's like most of the junior staff is female or queer um, and or queer, uh, whereas, you know, all of pretty much all of the upper leadership is uh, male and mostly straight. Um, so there is a big like upswelling uh, within our group of people who really care about this. Um, and I feel lucky to be working in comics at this time because we have more diverse creators out there than ever who are able to find new platforms and able to bring us their work so that we can find them uh, much easier than we ever used to. Um, but yeah, I mean, I got to edit the very first ever Marvel Pride anthology and that like if I never did anything else at Marvel that would be um, such an incredible thing for me so it is really special and, it, and it's something I think about in the forefront all the time not just for projects like Voices where it's very specifically like this is to bring in diverse marginalized talent but across our whole line like I want to have those people writing mainstream you know perennial books as well um, so yeah. 
I feel like uh, the the template you just gave for it's a lot of white straight men in leadership, but the younger generation coming up is a lot of queer people and women and people of color. I feel like that's a representative uh, uh, sample of power in America itself in a weird way, where as we look at kind of the regimes changing over time, I, uh, I think that's such a beautiful thing. Uh, the Marvel Voices books have been coming out for the last three or four years where we get uh, anthologies by creators of a particular type of diversity. So there has been Hispanic books and Asian focused books and black and women focused books and queer focused books, uh, all under the titles Marvel Voices. And the characters uh, uh, are all queer and the creators are all queer for the for the Pride book specifically. Uh, tell us how that came to came to be initially. That's a, such a big deal as a long-term Marvel fan. It is a huge deal to see that type of book come together. Yeah, and it really was a collaboration across um, a bunch of different areas at Marvel. So I can't take any credit for that program existing. Uh, it was created by Angelique Roche, who hosts the Marvel Voices podcast, which started the whole thing. Um, she does a lot of different uh, work for Marvel over on the, especially the digital media side. And she became friends with Chris Robinson, uh, who is no longer at Marvel, uh, but a, a talented editor who came up with the idea of doing an anthology of it um, with that specific mission. And there was no particular like area of diversity. It was just let's bring in a lot of diverse talent, uh, mostly black talent, um, but really people from all over and do an anthology that uh, celebrates a bunch of characters who don't necessarily get the spotlight. and. Chris did this kind of like quietly, like I don't even know how he got it approved, honestly. It just happened. And then he was off quietly in his corner, like building this thing. And then it came out and it sort of shocked everyone. Like it's, it did really well. It got people really excited. I don't think anyone anticipated that anthology making waves the way that it did. Um, so Chris and Angelique really built that. Uh, and then from there, um, the Voices program fell into uh, mine and Will Moss's office. Um, and Will is uh, a, such a good editor and also somebody who very quietly for a long time has been trying to push different kinds of voices and different kinds of stories. Um, so it was really a natural fit for Will. And I'm lucky that I got to come up and like learn from him for a long time. So we built a couple of them together. Um, and we did specifically a, a Black History Month one. Um, and then we didn't know what was going to happen next, where it was going. So I actually brought the idea to do um, more targeted ones like that. And I, I pitched an Indigenous Voices one, which was another comic that I was like, there's no way they're going to let me do this. And then they did. Um, and it also made huge waves. Uh, you know, it's it sold really well for what people expected. Um, and we got so many letters, we got so much feedback, we got stuff from libraries, from editors, like people who had never read Marvel Comics before, just being like, I did not know that superhero comics existed for me. I didn't know that Marvel had any indigenous characters, when in fact, we have a bunch of them. Um, and I brought in some really cool people for that, like Rebecca Roanhorse, um, Maria Wolf, who's an amazing, very cover artist, did her first Mar cover. Maria's been on my show. She's amazing. Oh, I love her so much. Um, so. Yeah, I was really excited about that and getting to bring in a bunch of new people. And it just kind of built from there. When we saw how well that was doing, we were like, well, we better do more of these. And it turned into a whole line of them. That's phenomenal. When we look at queer voices specifically, 
the trend of characters in Marvel is weirdly, uh, well, characters allowed to be out. It's weirdly kind of akin to creators being allowed to be out. Uh, I've been able to interview people like J.M. DeMatteis, who had the character Arnie Roth in Captain America, but couldn't say he was gay. We got yeah. North Star in Alpha Flight, and it's hinted for years. Iceman and the X-Men, hinted for years. Uh, but there wasn't the ability to say out loud, these characters are queer. Uh, uh, I, I've been reading uh, Silver Sable recently. There's all, these, uh, there's all these characters in there that are kind of queer coded. Uh, and then suddenly it was kind of around the, kind of around the time Iceman came out publicly, ironically, which was, I think, 2011, where creators could start saying we are queer as well. Like we're queer people working on these books rather than just having, uh, you know, uh, it not stated out loud. Uh, what do you think allowed for that shift for characters and creators to start coming out? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, it was inevitable. And even at that time, it felt late in a lot of ways where a lot of people were like, come on, like, we've been waiting like 30 years for this. Um, so, yeah, it's a, I don't know exactly what made the shift at that time. Maybe it was partly that under Axel Alonso's uh, leadership as the EIC, we were doing a lot more diverse projects. Um, Axel was really open to that. We had a lot of uh, editors at the time who were very passionate about that. And I think for all of us, like as soon as those windows opened, we were like, oh, okay, like let's wedge our hands in there and keep them from closing. Um, so we've all got really galvanized and excited and then made it missions to be more vocal. And it really is a multifaceted thing where like the more vocal that the talent is, the easier it is for us to be vocal and vice versa. We're trying to build that from each side. Um, but it's, it has been really tough. And there was a time where, you know, people really couldn't come out and say that they were queer creators because you didn't know how that was going to affect your reputation. Like I've, I've seen it even now, you know, people get in their heads about, oh, well, this person tells queer stories and, you know, that's nice, but like, we're not really looking for that. Um, and so the, the fact that we've been able to sort of shift the narrative a little bit to be like, no, what do you mean queer stories? Like, what does that mean? Um, and now we can have them appearing all over the place. The X-Men line in particular is like super diverse. There's a queer character in almost every book. Um, and we were able to just kind of do that by force of inertia, I think. <laughs> I can speak to that some from the creator side too. I mean, I think a lot of what Sarah was saying, I was an intern under Axel many years ago. And I think Axel was actually a pretty big component in advocating for more diverse characters. And editors coming up who, you know, came from more diverse backgrounds themselves and were pushing internally at the same time that a lot of creators who were raised on like the manga and anime boom and the webcomic boom were starting to make ourselves known in mainstream print comics. And those were arenas where, you know, there's certainly problematic queer representation in manga and, and other places, but those are places that were pushing the boundary a little more than Western mainstream comics. So as you have people who cut their teeth reading that sort of stuff, moving into Marvel and DC and Boom and Image and everywhere else, it was a sort of like rising tide lifting all ships, I think. Um, and, you know, politically, the situation around 2011 was a little different than you know, 10 years prior and, and then a few years it's like after. like the golden age now. <laughs> yeah. Like we had a moment where things were all kind of on an upswing, I think. Um, but I, what Sarah said too is there is a lot of anxiety as a diverse creator of, I was never in the closet as a published creator, but 
I know some of my anxieties and some of my fears when I first started getting published were, oh, you know, maybe I'll get a chance to tell like one gay story at Marvel or DC and that's it. Like I'll never get hired for anything again. And I used to write for Pace Magazine. I used to edit for Pace Magazine and Teeny Howard, who's doing Captain Britain with Sarah now, um, she's a good friend of mine. She contributed and one of her first articles were was about how women never get hired to write male characters. Which, of course, Keeney went on to to buck that trend in, in several places. Her first sure. published Marvel comic was a Captain America story. So uh, I do think that things have changed a lot. And it is still an anxiety a lot of us reckon with. Even when I got the chance to do Web Weaver, the, the gay Spider-Man character over in the Spider-Office, there was that, that voice in the back of my head of like, oh, will this make me the gay writer? Um, and I think what Sarah said earlier about pushing diverse talent, not just for those specific characters, but everywhere is really how you make lasting change. Like the moment Jordan offered me an X-Men annual after Web Weaver that had nothing to do with like, you know, it wasn't an Iceman story. It wasn't a North Star story. That's the kind of stuff that reinforces like, okay, we're getting to come to the table. We're getting to tell stories. We're not just getting pigeonholed. And that was really when I started editing the voices comics was one of my main things like every meeting I'd go into I'd be like okay I'm gonna hire this person what are we gonna do with them next like I'm not interested in going through all the work of hiring someone to do a 10-page story and then forgetting that they exist I want them in the Marvel universe I want more of those stories coming out across the line I'm sure like the audience coming out and supporting it is you know the ultimate deciding factor too right Absolutely. If they don't sell, we Marvel's in the business it. of selling the books. And if the audience is there and they're willing to pick up those anthologies and they support them, then they're going to make more of them. For sure. And we have a lot of work to do, I think, in reaching out more to those audiences, though. Um, like we're seeing that success, but we could do more to pull those people in, I think, and not not cater all of our marketing to, you know, the kind of stereotypical like male very narrow windowed audience. Well, and then there's the funny part about that is there are plenty of books that are still geared for the white straight guys, right? It's, right. it's, it's nice to have a diverse line where there are queer books. And if you have the type of person who's like, I'm not going to see that film or buy that book because you have one gay character in the background, that's maybe not the audience you want buying this particular book anyway. Uh, I came out in 2011. And part of the funny part about this, I was married to a woman and we had two children together before I came out. When you jump on my creator profile on marvel.com, which is there because I, I worked for them for a while, it still lists me as like straight and religious, which is funny because I'm married to a man now and it's a very different world. But uh, I, I, I had this profile of me printed in the back of one of the one of the handbooks that still it like I go back and look and I'm like, oh, I'm a very different person. Now. And the world changed vastly around this same time. It's kind of the point where like pride became it was kind of counterculture before. And now, you know, most of pride is like businesses marching their, <laughs> their pride flags down the road. Uh, it's, it's become very corporate and very trendy. It's good for business to have queer representation. now. it's an interesting thing. Um, who are your favorite queer characters? Who are the people, uh, particularly X-Men, I suppose, uh, the people that you uh, strive for, the people that you love? I grew up reading X-Force and the Richter Shatterstar connection, which was kind of under the scenes. I remember, um, I can't give the issue number. There's there's an issue of X-Force uh, where they're fighting Arcade, I think. And Shatterstar gets like fully naked in front of Richter and he's like changing for battle. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> 
and now I go back and read and I'm like, well, yeah, they're queer. And that's like, that's how they said it. It was on the page right there. Uh, but that one in particular, and then when Karma came out, uh, although it was a little bit uh, shaded at the time with her like short pink haircut, which was just revisited in uh, New Mutants recently, that time period for her. Uh, those were big moments for me. Uh, North Star, of course, but that one felt very in your face, <laughs> which it is upon reread. Uh, how about for you guys? Do you have some of your favorite uh, queer characters or moments? Uh, oh, man, it's kind of tough to to narrow it down. I mean, I love the Runaways. Um, oh, God, yeah. Yeah, I always love that that team, that whole cast, uh, and Carolina in particular. Um, in the X-Men, it's probably Mystique and Destiny, although they've not gotten like the full justice of queer stories, I think um, that like, it's, it's great that we have that now, but they haven't ever had, if you were trying to do a queer history of them, it would be difficult. It would be pulled from all kinds of places and, you know, it'd be some kind of listicle. Um, I would love to have like the definitive queer mystique and destiny book someday that you could point to. Um, but yeah, I love them because that also has been coded for so long. They're both complex. They both have been with many other people. Um, which I think is sort of part of also the contemporary queer experience in a lot of ways. Um, so yeah, that, that's my pick. The new Immortal X-Men that just came out yesterday is a flashback to various time periods where uh, Destiny and Mystique are in love for like a century and a half. It's, it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Steven, Jason, same question. You want to go, Jason? Um, yeah, probably, um, let's see, Wiccan and Hulkling. Yeah. I love their relationship. Um, over at DC, I really like uh, Renee Montoya. Uh, she's a great character over there. They've done some, you know, really interesting stuff with her over the years. Yeah, those are also Mystique, too. You know, um, I read comic. you know, I've been reading X-Men comics since, like, the 80s, and I don't think until recently I picked up on the, the undertones of Mystique and Destiny. And then when you go back, you're like, oh, yeah, it's clear what Claremont was trying to do there. You just couldn't say. Well, he was shading so much. I mean, everyone was (laughs) noted. Sure. Yeah, a lot of mine. I mean, I don't want to like call myself precocious, but like when I was a young preteen, I I came out to like friends and schoolmates really early in like sixth grade, and I was seeking out stuff like Hedwig and the Angry Inch and Clive Barker, and so a lot of my favorite queer comic characters are from vertigo stories like enigma or the invisibles i was looking for more like transgressive portrayals than we were getting in comics around that time like turn of the century um where the the best we had was um hank mccoy pretending to be gay for half an issue (laughs) in, 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 uh, in grant's run um but nowadays i i do love that more and more characters are getting to be complicated it's not just like here's good gay representation trademark um so i love north star because he's an unlikable ass like the vast majority of the time like um i i like bobby when he's kind of a, a bratty little shit who hasn't like matured yet um I like that Mystique and Destiny are very self-serving and manipulative and, and they don't mind betraying others to, to put themselves ahead um, because I really cut my teeth on kind of morally murky gay stories and, and I want the chance to see more of those. And it's funny because I think, I mean, I could get on this soapbox forever, but I think it, I don't think mainstream comics has quite figured out how to nail queer characters that queer readers love like and mass audiences like 
I, I think those are often two completely different things. And um, characters like Northstar, I think, are one of my favorite examples of that because a lot of gay men don't care about Northstar, maybe because he's too real. <laughs> like, he's too much like some of the gay men in our lives or that we are ourselves. Um, and then they're also, you know, I don't always love, like, the perfect Twinkie little gay characters because that doesn't reflect the complexity of gay life in my my history and my experience. We have enough queer characters now that it's easy to forget a lot of them. I, I was just thinking about randomly, I think it's Robert Kirkman who wrote uh, a Marvel team up and there's a character named Freedom Ring. Freedom Ring. <laughs> He's like wearing a purse and he meets his boyfriend for a date. He brought his own maple syrup to the restaurant because he likes his better. And like he's horribly killed at the end of that story. But like there's so many now, it's easy to forget a lot of them uh, that, that are along the way, which is a wonderful problem to have. Uh, it, I think it's fantastic. Um, switching gears completely for a minute, Jason, let me focus on you for a sec. I would love to hear about some of your journey as a comic book fan into a professional artist. Uh, you are doing incredible work on By the Horns. The work is epic fantasy, epic fem feminist fantasy. Uh, I've talked to Marcus on about this book a few times. Incredible, uh, wonderful characters and the art and your design for uh, for the unicorns, for the big monster bosses. Uh, it's it's You've developed a whole land. The, the world you guys have built is wonderful. I'm a huge fan of your artwork, my friend. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that very much. Um, my journey, uh, yeah, I mean, I've been reading comics since as far as back as I can remember. I mean, right before we started the podcast, we were talking about old Marvel team-ups from the 80s. The, the first comic that I ever, I think I owned comics that people had bought for me, but the first one I ever remember reading and, like, absorbing and recognizing, like, oh, this art is good. I really like this art was um, an X-Men annual. It was an Art Adams X-Men annual where they introduced the X-Babies. It was the, the yeah, yeah. my Claremont. And that was the first time I was like, oh, like, I like this artist, you know, as opposed to like, you know, when you're a kid, you just like everything. Um, yeah, so I just read comics all my life. Uh, when I was 16, I started working in a comic shop. They uh, they put a help wanted sign in the window, maybe like a month before my 16th birthday. And I was like, how old do you have to be at work here? I'm like 16. And I was just like, counting the days. I went in there on my 16th birthday and filled out the application. <laughs> thinking like, oh man, there was probably like a line of people waiting to get this job. And really, I was probably the only one that were, you know, applied for the job. But uh, yeah, I worked there uh, all through high school and a little bit of college. Um, and then as far as like my career in comics, um, I went to school for, I originally started for illustration. Um, and then I chickened out and switched to graphic design because it seemed like a more stable, stable job. And then after a few years of working in graphic design, I was like, I'm bored as hell. I'm going to start comics again. And um, Marcus on actually the writer on by the horns uh, was a customer at the comic shop back in the day when I worked there and uh, we reconnected, you know, years and years later. And he was thinking about writing some comics and I was thinking about drawing comics and kind of met up and pitched some ideas. And that's when we came up with our first book, which was voracious, which um, if people don't know. It's about a chef who travels through time to get dinosaur meat from the past to serve at his restaurant in the present. And then of course, you know, you can't mess with time travel without screwing something up. So um, we did that book for uh, three volumes. And then um, after that was over, we were kind of deciding what we wanted to do next. And Voracious had a lot of um, like technology in it, like hard science type stuff. And I was like, I want to go in the opposite direction. Like, I don't want to draw any like sci-fi guns or starships or like technological labs. <laughs> I want to do like fantasy stuff. I want to do swords. I want to do dragons. I want to do soft things and environments, you know, like lush, 
lush environments. Um, so we decided to do a fantasy book and that's where we kind of like developed by the horns together. And uh, if people don't know, so by the horns is about a, a hunter named Elodie who um, before the book begins, her husband's trampled by unicorns. So she swears vengeance on all unicorns, but they're really hard to find. And she's from a little farming village and they basically tell her like, listen, you're too obsessed with revenge. Take a year off, get it out of your system, come back, you know, be a part of the community. And so along the way, she realizes there's a larger threat to the uh, to the continent. Um, and uh, the only way to fight that threat is she's going to have to team up with a pair of unicorns. So the kind of book is about um, her band of misfits. She also has a, a, a deer wolf hybrid named Sajin who uh, communicates with her telepathically. He's like her best friend. And then they eventually meet up with a little eyeball named Evelyn who they rescue. And so the, there's the, they're this uh, ragtag band of misfits who have to save the world. But, you know. The unicorns have no idea how much she hates them and they think she's altruistic and is going to save the day. So that was the, that was like, that's the driving force of the book. And we're now on our second arc of that book. And uh, I love doing it. I love the book so much. Um, it's a you know, you're talking about the world. No, go oh, ahead. You. Well, talking about the world, one of the things I love about the book is we kind of develop the world to be anything. Uh, where anything goes where i'll pretty much go to markstown and i'll say like hey i want to draw pirates or i think they should uh wind up in like the tundra or let's do a desert scene there's a scene in the first volume where they go through um a bunch of booby traps in a temple and it's just because i wanted to draw some indiana jones style you know like flying darts and closing walls and stuff like that so uh yeah we've set up the book in the world where like anything can happen so uh i'm having a ton of fun doing it the uh it's it's fun getting to know you because i've gotten to know marcus on so well it's it's mm-hmm. uh it, it's hearing both of you talk about the collaboration you put into it it's a it's a really great book everybody check it out if you have not uh uh when i was 16 i went to my local comic book shop and said things are really shitty at home and i need comic books to survive but i can't afford them will you hire me and pay me in comic books? And they did. And over like the next three years, that's how I got this huge comic book collection. Cause they had me, I was like running the store a lot of the time, but they would pay me in comic. I had an hourly rate that I would redeem in like X-Men back issues. And I ended up with these like stacks and stacks of comics, uh, which turned into this lifelong love uh, of everything. I, I, uh, I love that environment. You know, Wednesday comes around and you get to stop by the comic store. It's uh, one of my, yeah, for sure. I, uh, I think my first summer I worked there, I was just paid in comics because I, I just used store credit to buy everything, you know? And like when you're into comics and the first time you work at a comic shop and you open a box of like just stacks and stacks of fresh books that no one's seen before, you're like, holy shit, this is amazing. <laughs> and like toys, I was, I was a toy collector. So like opening a box of toys and like having my pick of anyone I wanted, I didn't have to hunt, hunt it down, you know, on the shelves and see if it was still there. Like all the, my uh... The IRS would frown upon this now, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. The fact that it was great. We were talking, Jason and I, just before we started recording about going in the back room and bringing out the big long boxes because you had to stock what was in the front, like going through, you know, and finding what was missing and restocking. Um, uh, Sarah, let me ask you a little bit of the same question. Tell me about a little bit of your journey from kind of fan into professional. Yeah. Um, so I did not read comics as a kid. Uh, I probably didn't enter a comic book store until I was 21 years old. Um, but I started reading them in graduate school as like, I, I had read some of the famous comics by that point, you know, the, the Alan Moores and like that kind of stuff. Um, but I started reading superhero comics uh, in grad school just as a break from, you know, Ulysses and like that kind of crap. Um, and 
it was giving me life and I found myself writing about them. Uh, and so I ended up turning my, um, my thesis into uh, a look at comic books and wrote about She-Hulk actually, um, and ended up reading almost, I think I've read just about every appearance of She-Hulk, um, including team-ups. So I've read a lot. <laughs> um, and I was doing internships with uh, regular old publishing companies, um, just trying to figure out how to set myself up for a job. And it was really boring. And um, I didn't like seeing the sort of behind the scenes of traditional publishing where it was like, you know, you watch a good pitch get thrown away because a celebrity pitched a ghostwritten cookbook, you know? Um, it was just, it was depressing. <laughs> Um, so I was like, I don't know if I can really do it. I don't know if I can work my way through the ranks in, in this place to get to doing the kind of books that I want. And a friend of mine told me that Marvel did internships and I was like, well, I mean, I like comics. I don't have this long history, but like, I'm, you know, smart enough. I can do administrative tasks. Maybe, maybe they'll let me in. And they did. And I spent a summer reading, uh, back issues of Fantastic Four and helping them put together a database of like, Sue Storm's first hair change, the first time the Fantastic Car shows up. Um, and I read 300 issues that summer. Oh my God, uh, the, the Marvel Handbooks guy in me is singing right now. That's the type uh, of thing I did all the time. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I've worked with uh, much of the Handbook team, uh, including Michael Sullivan, who is also gay. Uh, yeah, Mike's a great so, guy. Yes. Um, so uh, yeah, I read all these comics and that was great because I also probably never would have read that much Fantastic Four. It's not my favorite Marvel property. Uh, I think because it is just a nuclear family. And so I immediately am like, mom shit, no thanks. Um, <laughs> so it was great as a grounding in the Marvel universe. And I just like downloaded all of this information. Um, and I really liked the culture. Everybody there is just really friendly and like boisterous. And it felt like a place that was really full of energy. Um, and I turned that internship into an internship with the Spidey office, where I mostly, again, just read Spider-Man comics. And that was great. Um, and then that turned into a part-time job in trades, cleaning up old files to be remastered. So going in and like making mini scroll edits on line work, um, did that for nine months. And then they finally offered me a full-time job. Uh, <laughs> but it still wasn't an editorial. I was still in trades and I did um, like art books for the movies. I did a bunch of movie handbooks. Uh, so that's how I know that whole team. Um, and a lot of like licensing projects. And the more it got into the licensing side, the more I was like, I, this is not really what I want to be doing. I want to be making stories. Um, so an opening came up in the actual editorial and an assistant editor had left and, uh, Axel liked me. He'd read some of the notes I'd given on prose novels and things like that. So he said, do you want to apply for this? Um, and yeah, it went from there. And then I worked for Will Moss for four years and then finally made it to editing my own titles. I'm so it was a long journey. I'm kind of surprised you and I haven't crossed paths back in 2011 and 12. I was doing a lot of that fringe stuff. I was writing like the text that would appear on the book jackets on the back of the trades, mm -hmm. uh, or I was like telling them what they should put in particular trades, like assembling databases with page counts. Uh, I even did, uh, this is one of my weird claims to fame, although no one remembers. When Marvel launched their, uh, their postage stamps in like 2011, 
I wrote the text. I was like Willie Lumpkin, the Fantastic Four's mailman. Like, hey, you guys, it's me, Willie Lumpkin. Look, here's the new Marvel steps. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I'm kind of surprised you and I never crossed paths. I'm kind of. Well, what year did you start? Um, I started full time in 2013. Okay, so you were right after I left. That that's yeah. why uh, when I came out, I had to reorganize a whole bunch of stuff in my life. So <laughs> I dropped my comics work for a while. Uh, but how fun to meet you. This is great. Um, Steve, same question. Oh, my comments. A little bit, journey. yeah, about your journey from a fan into a person. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I mean, lifelong fan. Um, I hit at kind of the perfect age to love X-Men the Animated Series. So, of course, getting to do House of, of 92 was a big... Um, I will set a book in, but that would imply I'm dying. Um, it, more, it, was, it was more of just a nice uh, bucket list. Why do all these terms involve death? Um, it was a nice thing to do. Uh, my first love, though, was Pride of the X which I think I've talked about before. Um, I got that on VHS when I was probably three years old and I was just completely obsessed with it. Um, and especially as, as a little baby gay boy uh, getting to meet Emma Frost and Dazzler uh, and Nightcrawler were all, you know, influential moments in, in my mutant history. Um, but yeah, I mean, I really was kind of single-mindedly focused on, on comics my whole life. I went to school for comics and children's books. I interned at Marvel um for a year where I met many people who still work there and, and people circled back in my life in other ways um and then I ended up working for Random House when I graduated so I worked in traditional publishing like Sarah for a while um I also decided it sucked <laughs> for for a lot of the same bureaucratic reasons um although I'm happy to be published by Random House now so yeah uh, no offense with saying it sucks to work there uh but yeah, I ended up uh, freelancing. I, I wrote for Pace Magazine covering comics at the same time that I was working on comics and children's books and just kind of steadily climbed my way uh, around the industry. Um, I, I don't think careers in, in writing and art are usually super linear and, and mine certainly hasn't been. Um, there were years where I only had one comic come out, but I had, you know, five or six children's books come out and I had other things I worked on and, and now I'm lucky to be really busy working on stuff at, at Marvel and Dark Horse and Image and, and other spots. It's uh, it's so fascinating hearing people's journey. Uh, Sarah, reflecting back on your senior thesis about She-Hulk, I, uh, I, I hear those stories so often too on this show. People who were fascinated, who ended up writing as teens about characters that they loved and then it turning into careers. Uh, it's just, it's such a fun journey to reflect and kind of see where things at. Now you're in a lot of different offices at the same time, as you mentioned back at the beginning. Do you have to put yourself in a different mindset based on which book you're working on on a particular day? Uh, Captain Britain and Alien, for example, are very different properties. <laughs> <laughs> true. Uh, yeah, it is a little bit of a different mindset. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, the, the core elements of how to tell a good story are always there. And that's what I'm working in service of. Um, but even switching from like the way that I edit Captain Marvel is different from the way that I edit the X-Men books because the X office is just a different beast. It's a, a little more collaborative. There's a lot more information that has to be shared. Whereas Captain Marvel is just like, you know, she's in the Avengers and she's doing other things. But for the most part, we can just tell a Captain Marvel story and not really have to worry about a lot of those other elements. Um, so that's really the main thing where I have to switch gears is that when I come to an X-Men book, I have to be like, okay, we're putting Rogue here, but she's also an X-Men. So I better make sure that like, that's going to line up 
uh, we can't break her, her and Gambit up this month because they're doing this. Like, you know. um, Don't break them up. We like them together. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's the main difference is really just how to coordinate, how to uh, communicate between the other editors and me. Um, it certainly was in a lot of ways easier when I was just in the Avengers office and it was all kind of under Tom Brevoort. Uh, now I'm a little bit more scattered and it definitely makes things different. When we had Annalise Bissa on the show, uh, who she I, I, she's wonderful. Uh, I asked her the same question. Can you share with us an editorial uh, like almost mistake that happened or even one that slipped past you and, w- and ended up being published? Oh man. You I have mean, so I, much to keep track of. <laughs> I have made many mistakes. So picking one is like, uh, I, you know, I'm sure that whatever I just sent to print last week has a mistake in it. <laughs> um, the biggest mistake, and I, t- I tell assistant editors this because, um, you know, there's a lot of pressure and there's so much to do and like you get really caught up in anxiety and, and like, Also, because it's a creative job, if you make a mistake, it feels like a personal indictment. You're like, oh, I really like messed up something that affected other people that affected the business. I should be good at this because I'm good at stories. So like there's a lot of pressure about making mistakes. And um, when I first started in editorial, we, we do these things. We do lineups for the books, which is where you get an Excel sheet and it's like a chart. And you set up where the pages are going to fall. So that's where advertisements go. This is where the recap is going to go. It's a pretty simple task that most uh, assistant editors handle. But nobody had really told me the specifics of how it worked. So I had a book that was uh, 30 pages as opposed to the normal 20-page comic. And I did a lineup where I moved the digital code page, which is the advertisement that falls towards the end of the book. This is getting very granular, but you can't move that page. I didn't know that. You couldn't, but you can't move it. It messes up the whole signatures. The printers have major problems. And so nobody caught it. Nobody above me caught it either. And it just went off to print and it got laid out and the printer didn't catch it until the very end. And we had to scrap like 8,000 comic books. That ad was in the wrong page. Um, And so I tell people that mistake because I'm always like, I cost the company like a lot of money and I had just started. I was very afraid. But Tom Brevoort called me in and he was like, listen, you're allowed to make any mistake once. You do it twice. That's when I get really mad but I'm never going to yell at you for making a mistake once. Just don't ever do it again. Um, and that was really good for me to hear. Uh, Tom's a great guy. That's a, that's a phenomenal story. I printed a comic book back in 2012 called The Mushroom Murders, and there's one misspelled word in the whole book. And all these years later, it still drives me nuts. <laughs> Whenever I look, I'm like, I hope no one notices. <laughs> it's just that one word. I always tell people, like, people are like, how can things possibly be missed like that? There are so many eyes on them. When we worked at when I worked at Random House, books would go through seven passes with like world class copy editors. It just happens. Like it's just impossible to completely avoid. And especially when you're talking about sequential publishing, like comics, like we're doing literature on a magazine time frame. Things slip through the cracks. <laughs> I tell people like I send anywhere at minimum twenty pages up to 75 pages of content to print a week a week like that's wild <laughs> uh steve i'm gonna ask this is gonna be weird for our listeners because they we're not recording video you have mannequin heads behind you with wigs on them i'm wondering <laughs> what the purpose of them is <laughs> 
So my other name is Bianca Del Rio, but I don't want people to know. Uh, now my my boyfriend is a, a streamer and cosplayer, and um, he's not like he's not like an acting drag queen, but he does drag streams, and most of his uh, cosplay is gender bent. Um, he actually just I don't know if you're familiar with the game Overwatch, but um, Blizzard, the the publisher, flew him out to California to do cosplay for their big competitive finale. And he did a, a gender bend of um, one of their most recent new characters in the game. So, yeah, I borrow his room for streaming. That's also why there's a collection, a collection of anime swords and uh, other other tools that don't involve my trade. Uh, this is a big question. So if nobody has an answer, that's completely fine. If you were a drag queen, what would your name be? Oh, I can go first. I was going to say, a lot of people have given yeah. this some thought. <laughs> well, my, mine is not good because it only works in print, but uh, mine would be Stevie Nicks, but NYX, like the goddess of darkness. Sure. But it's terrible because when you say it out loud, it's just like, no, no, you're not. <laughs> uh, mine, mine would be Hilda, last name Dion, Hilda Dion. <laughs> uh, Sarah, Jason, do you have any drag queen names? Oh, man. <laughs> I feel pressure. I don't know. Oh yeah, yeah. This is unless you've given this previous. Uh, there's no, there's no answers here. My, uh, my husband. Uh, we don't do drag, but my husband says his drag name is Celery Clinton, which is somehow <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> wow. All right. So with that, I think we're going to transition into our issue review today. It is such an honor to get to know each of you uh, and to hear your stories. Thank you, everybody, for sharing. I love the energy we create when we're assembling kind of groups of uh, passionate nerds. That's my favorite thing about this show. Uh, today, we're going to jump into X-Men Spider-Man number one. This is a, a limited series from 2009 written by Christos Gage who is just a wonderful guy. Back, back when I worked on the handbooks again, he was one of the people who was the kindest and most consistent with me. Uh, he was so easy to work with, and I still have such a high opinion of him all these years later. Uh, the artist in these issues, uh, or at least on issue one, is Mario Alberti. Uh, the letterer is Jared Fletcher, and the editor is uh, Steve Wacker. Now, this is a series that pits Spider-Man teaming up with the X-Men across four different time periods at each issue. So issue number one is based in the 1960s. We're not going to cover two through four, but the second issue is set up like during the Morlock Massacre era. The third one's kind of during the Clone Saga. Uh, the fourth one's more in the 2008 kind of era continuity. And we get kind of a similar story being told with Mr. Sinister and Craven the Hunter kind of as the background behind the scenes, guys. It's four different time periods. It's a fun book to read. Uh, it stands up pretty all right. Uh, it's a, it's an interesting conceptual book. Um, anyone, or, uh, Sarah, do you have anything you'd like to add? I, this is before your time, I know, but uh, about the publication of this book or where it came from. Uh, I don't actually, I had never read this book. Um, so I was excited to dive into it. Um, yeah, I, I don't think I have anything. <laughs> yeah, this uh, this was being managed by uh, by Steve Wacker, who was the Spider-Man editor at the time. Uh, it's collaborative, and Christos Gage does a great job of historical timepieces. Uh, he he knows a ton of Marvel stuff all over the place. He did like a Avengers: The Initiative, and he's done a ton of stuff with Dan Slott over the years. So there's he's he's got a wide depth of Marvel knowledge. So he does a good job at marking things in continuity. 
Uh, this He's a really good collaborator too. He and Steve both, I think, are very like vocal and like to share stuff. Steve is very much a hands-on, like, let me give you my ideas too, editor. So I, I imagine that they work really well together. Yeah, I've never worked with Steve, but I yeah, I can't say enough good things about Christos. I think he's he's wonderful. Uh, he and his wife are both just incredible writers. Uh, so as we're jumping into this book, uh, this is set right after X-Men 66. Uh, page one, we see a reference to their battle with the Hulk, which is in X-Men 66, right as the book was canceled. And then the X-Men appear in a bunch of other titles. Continuity wise, uh, this is like uh, X-Men, the hidden years era. Uh, we don't know exactly where it kind of slides into spaces, but it does fit pretty well. On the cover, we have a, uh, a, a group shot of the X-Men kind of flying through space with Spider-Man, uh, kind of right front and center. Um, it's an interesting cover. Uh, this is a this is a question for the group. But who is perkier on this cover, Spider Man or Jean Grey? <laughs> Spider Man is ass out. Like, <laughs> a lot. Any thoughts I on mean, this cover from our guests? <laughs> I just think the Italians have a really interesting approach to art, <laughs> and, and I respect it and I value it, and I'm glad they exist and that they're doing this. <laughs> Spider-Man is uh, like back arched, at, like ass out, legs forward. <laughs> this is funny too, because I, I think it was around the same, it had to be within a couple of years of when they did the Milo Manara X-Men miniseries. So every yeah. once in a while, Marvel and DC are just like, hey, really horny Italian, would you like to draw something? <laughs> he's got sort of like a drag show pose. Like he's going to rip that costume off and then reveal something. <laughs> Great. <laughs> this is a this is an era where the X Men are still in kind of their their infamous kind of second costumes, with the exception of Angel, who's changed things up. This is a this is the Jean Grey green dress era. Uh, I don't know if you guys have opinions on the famous green mini dress. <laughs> I love it, honestly. I love it. I like it too. I thought it was wild when when the Krakoa stuff launched and everyone was convinced it was like a secret code from Jonathan Hickman that Jean was like an older version of herself and then Jonathan was like no I, I just I just like it <laughs> I just think it's cool <laughs> I think it looks good it's not practical obviously but I feel like nowadays in the last couple of years she's been wearing it again and I feel like the points on her mask Start getting taller and taller and taller <laughs> as like the, the months go by. This is something in the new X-Men books. Havoc has that like little crown on his suit. And in the new books, mm -hmm. his crown is <laughs> bigger than his head. <laughs> Sarah, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I was just going to say that I like her her latest costume too. Um, the new one that Pepe Larraz designed is uh, really, really sleek. When I finally get to the trial of Jean Grey on this podcast next summer, we'll do a Jean Grey costume gallery. There's some pretty good gems along the way. Uh, this book is called the is titled "The Strangest Teens of All," which is a tagline that appeared on a lot of the X Men books back in the '60s. And say so the X Men, the strangest teens of all, right there on the cover, kind of like Fantastic Four would be the world's greatest co comic magazine, and uh, the Avengers were Earth's mightiest heroes. Uh, so that's where this uh, comes from. On page one, and I'll cover the beginning here. We, uh, we get a flashback to, well, uh, some TV footage of the X-Men battling the Hulk and the army in the streets. Uh, and it is being spun on the television by J. Jonah Jameson, uh, who I adore, uh, as uh, the mutant menace. He is uh, He's always ranting about whatever. J. Jonah Jameson in the real world would be on Fox News all the time. <laughs> it's like every segment, every day, he would just be ranting. He's like the Rudy Giuliani of... <laughs> 
of the Marvel Universe in some ways. Uh, but he's just ranting about the mutant menace and how dangerous they are. And the X-Men are watching from their home and they're pretty concerned. They're like, well, they don't understand us if they knew what we had actually been trying to do. Uh, Jean Grey comments, you know, hey, Angel, maybe you should wear a different mask. People can recognize your face pretty easily. So this is an era where they still have very secret identities. Uh, this image of them on the couch, Beast is so grumpy with his arms folded. He is not pleased at Jameson's report by any means. Uh, and uh, Spider-Man is hearing the same report. Spider-Man is, is on a web upside down, peeping Tom into some guy's window. And this man in this window watching J. Jonah Jameson. He's in the like, filthiest New York apartment I've ever seen. There's beads hanging down from the wall, like tipped over cups of coffee. He has like cheetah print shoes on and a wife beater and a hat and a like yin yang medallion. <laughs> he, he's carrying a cane that has like an eight ball on the top. He's only in one image, but I want to meet this man and I want to interview <laughs> him because he is fascinating. I uh, I wonder what was happening because there's a lot of detail put into like the script must have just said like civilian. Uh, and then uh, Mario Alberti, Alberti really took some creative license on this guy. What do you think his story is, this man? <laughs> I wonder if like that's what uh, Italy was like in the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This made me nostalgic for New York. Like his yes. depiction of a grimy New York made me miss miss the city. I'm gonna hazard to guess that the eight ball is uh, certainly referencing more than just pool for this fellow. <laughs> this guy is either a pimp or a busker or both. That's my that's my theory. <laughs> I think I think he gets up to a good time. <laughs> And just even the image out his window, the layers of New York City, the billboards, the various levels of buildings and signage, it's, it's, it's really beautifully drawn. Um, we get some flashbacks. Spider-Man is kind of thinking about how awful his career has been, how difficult things have been for him. And it's sure nice that J. Jonah Jameson is focused on someone behind, beside him for just a minute. This is an era where he is dating Gwen Stacy. He's thinking about how he wants to make more time for her. And there's one image of her sitting and looking out at the water. She's gorgeous. I love uh, I love Gwen Stacy. Uh, and then Craven the Hunter appears on the news show. He is freshly out of jail and he is talking. It turns out we're going to learn in a minute, so spoilers for later, that Mr. Sinister has hired him to do this. But he's talking about how awful Spider-Man is and how he believes that Spider-Man is a mutant. Uh, let's talk about J. Jonah, or excuse me, let's talk about Craven the Hunter's fashion for just a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> How would you guys describe this man's costume? Because it is fulsome leather daddy realness just across the board. <laughs> it's so tight. Like, oh my God. It's so, those pants are just every <laughs> contour. I love it. It's very Freddie Mercury somehow. Then he also has ballerina slippers, essentially. <laughs> like that, that always seemed good for trekking through the jungle. That always cracked me up as a kid. The one thing that, that I was tripped up on when it came to Craven wore the ballerina slippers. He has yoga pants and ballerina slippers on, essentially. <laughs> the whole lion jacket, honestly, is incredible, too, because it's so realistic. Like, I mean, you're supposed to believe that he's wearing a lion's face, which means that like he <laughs> cut it in half and put in a zipper. Like That's wild. <laughs> There's no zipper. <laughs> <laughs> Craven is wearing like skin tight leopard or cheetah print pants uh, with like, he's basically shirtless with an open vest. 
There's like a, a, a belt around his waist with like fangs on it. Uh, his vest is like lion mane up on the shoulders and then lion face on his chest with the eyes perfectly positioned over his nipples, basically. He's got a couple armbands and bracelets to show off his biceps. Uh, this is a character that people have been horny for for many years. <laughs> continues to inspire horniness in the comics all the time. Uh, Craven has a quick backstory. He's a Spider-Man villain primarily. He uh, he has a movie coming out in 2023. One of those like Fox Spider-Man movies. That's my understanding. Uh, he is Sergei Kravenov. He's related to the Spider-Man villain uh, uh, Chameleon. He's a Russian aristocrat who is obsessed with hunting. And that's kind of all you need to know. He's been alive for a long time. He uses various like jungle potions. Uh, you learn he met like the, I think she's a voodoo priestess named Calypso who's given him potions to help him stay alive. Uh, he has knives and various weapons. He's an expert with traps. Uh, he occasionally uses technology, but he's obsessed with hunting the next thing. So in his first appearance, he's after Spider-Man. In this issue, he's after the X-Men. He's gone after all kinds of monsters and creatures and all sorts of environments. Uh, I may have missed an appearance here, but the only time I know of that he has fought the X-Men is. In X-Men The Hidden Years 16 and 17, he was featured in the X-Statics Dead Girl Presents series. <laughs> uh, there's a weird series set, uh, uh, Tom Brevoort and I talk about this a little bit, in uh, Avengers 1959, it's called, where there's a team of 1950s Avengers that includes Sabretooth and Kraven the Hunter as part of the team, which is crazy. Uh, he's also in an issue of Savage Wolverine. And then the cloned son of Craven is was in a recent Benjamin Percy arc uh, attacking the X-Men on Krakoa. Uh, so just kind of a question for the panel here. What are your thoughts on Craven the Hunter as a villain? Do you like this character? I mean, I love him, although he's he I'm obviously he's had so many great stories. I mean, Craven's Lost Hunt truly is still a masterpiece. Um yeah. But maybe my favorite portrayal of Craven was in uh, Squirrel Girl. So totally the opposite <laughs> direction. <laughs> love it. <laughs> I love him, but he was one that I did not come around on easily as a kid. Uh, it, when you like line up Spider-Man's rogues gallery, I just didn't think a hunter in ballerina shoes was as interesting as a lot of the others but then as you get older you see his his mini appeals uh i actually really thought he was going to be the villain for the third tom holland movie i was surprised uh i and i also completely dumped the information from my head that he was getting a solo movie until you until you mentioned that <laughs> yeah he's almost a he's almost a, a stupid character when you put the concept down but when you put him into practice depending on the writer he's a very cool villain uh depending on the story being told uh jason did you have any comments there no i felt the same way steve i think as a kid i thought it was a little lame i always i always thought like the the normal dude villains were kind of boring give me like the lizard the rhino he's just, again just a guy in ballerina slippers but yeah i have grown to appreciate him <laughs> over the years although sometimes he's he's a little one note in the sense that all he wants to do is, I mean, I guess he's driven and he, you know, he's got a purpose. He just wants to hunt. He knows what he wants. He's got, he's got that like vision board and it just says hunt. That's all he does. <laughs> like maybe that's, maybe that's uh, something to be envied, you know? Craven has hunted. So oh, I'm sorry, sorry. Go ahead. I, I think he's, that's so interesting about him though, in a modern context, because Craven is a commentary on masculinity. And so when you look at it through that lens, it's like, 
his psychological journey is really fascinating to me. <laughs> yeah, he's he's uh yeah, I think that's a he's the patriarchy, uh he's the man of privilege hunting creatures for sports. Uh and there's something very uh, patriarchal about that concept in itself but he's also like the man's man uh but he's just dressed real gay <laughs> it's, it's a little of both craven has hunted tigra he's hunted zabu uh, and fought kesar a few times he's he's been all over the marvel universe and benjamin percy writing the son of craven story recently he has never been more frightening. Good Lord. He was brutal in that recent X-Force run. Uh, just murdering innocents. Uh, it's really scary. Uh, they also, Nick Spencer recently featured him in Spider-Man where uh, Craven wants to die again. And he kidnaps basically every animal-themed villain that Marvel has and locks them in Central Park and goes hunting all of them. And Toad was part of that. <laughs> like the white rabbit. There's all these characters that he's just like, kill them. He's, uh, he's, he's getting white billionaires to man suits and hunt down these people. There's a, there's a lot of classic Craven stories. Uh, Craven's last hunt being the top of the list, of course. Uh, Sarah, will you take the next five pages for us? Tell us what happens. Yeah, so um, yeah, we jumped from Craven announcing to everybody that Spider-Man is a mutant. Um, and cut from there to uh, back to being with the X-Men group, uh, listening to this broadcast. And they're all very confused because they know for a fact that uh, Peter is not a mutant uh, because Professor Xavier has already scanned him and they've confirmed that for sure. Um, but they decide to go find him and help him because their reasoning is uh, they know that Peter, or they know that Spider-Man is roughly around their age, although he still has a secret identity. Um, but unlike them, he's all alone. So they decide, you know, if everybody's going to paint him as a mutant, he has no idea what's coming for him. He doesn't know about all of our history, about how much people hate us. He thinks that he's hated as Spider-Man, but it's going to be way worse. So we better go find him. We better warn him and back him up if he needs to be. Um, so we cut from there and then we get uh, Peter is going out on the town, um, just like in his earlier uh, uh musings he's decided to take a night off from superheroing he just wants to go out on the town have a nice night out with gwen and uh he's meeting up mary jane comes with him and they're meeting up with harry and uh with flash thompson at the bar um i love this uh panel that shows them walking down the street together it's peter in the middle and then mj on one side and gwen stacy on the other and they're both wearing like you know cutesy little outfits uh for the winter going out on the town Peter's got this shit-eating grin on his face. Uh, and it's because he's just surrounded by these two beautiful women. Now, MJ is dating Harry at the time. Um, and that leads to some tension, uh, which we'll get to in a second. But Craven has been hunting him this whole time. And he does not know Peter's secret identity at this point. But he finds some uh, webbing that hasn't yet dissolved. And it happens to be right in front of the bar that Peter is entering with uh, the girls. So he's got... Peter's scent on him. He's tracking him that way. It's a little bit unclear exactly how he manages to find Peter in this exact moment, but find him, he does. Uh, and then the X-Men go out on the town and they decide to do basically the same thing. They can't find Peter exactly. Um, uh, Jean can get close to him with her telepathy, but she can't pinpoint his exact location. So they go, they go bar hunting to find him and end up stumbling into the same bar where Jean gets enough of the telepathy that she's like, he's definitely here. We can find him. Um, 
so we go into the bar scene here and uh again like the art is so great there's so many different people in these shots so many different background elements like you're talking about being nostalgic for new york this makes me nostalgic for that particular brand of like new york dive bar that really doesn't <laughs> exist anywhere else um, and the, the x-men often hang out at the coffee or the coffee a go-go this is Spider-Man's place. Uh, this is in the, the, six, the 60s, but yeah, the coffee bean from the Spider-Man 60s books, which is fun. Yes. Uh, it's turned into some kind of nightclub in this particular uh, scenario. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, we've got a little bit of tension uh, between all of the different characters here. Um, uh, Harry sees MJ walk in with Peter and he's like, hey, maybe you can get off of that guy's arm. You're supposed to be here meeting me. MJ is teasing him, but there's there's clearly some very real tension there, um, and that continues throughout the whole night. Uh, and then Flash Thompson is there on leave, just partying with the group. Uh, he's unattached and just there to have a good time, which is why he walks over and hits on Gene. Um, he realizes that uh, the his friends are busy, uh, and yeah, tries to get a hit on. Um, this obviously doesn't make Cyclops very happy, but Gene points out, hey, if I if I walk the room and I keep mingling, I'll be better able to pinpoint Peter. Um, so she goes off to dance with Flash, uh, and then in the meantime, the guys behind her are still basically just fighting. Um, but these scenes are really beautiful. The The facial expressions and everything are really gorgeous. Um, I, I love the art on, on this whole issue. But yeah, I think I got it. Yeah, yeah, great job. There's a bunch of, uh, in the background in these scenes, there's a bunch of like movie posters and like photographs of celebrities, but they're all kind of faded out just a little bit. We get it on the billboards earlier too. It almost makes me wonder what happened editorially. Like Mario Alberti wanted to show, that one of the posters you can kind of vaguely make out the name Clint Eastwood. Uh, so they seem to be real people, but I can't quite tell who any of them are, which is an interesting thing. I, I would suspect that he did that on his own actually because we are much tighter now about that kind of thing like this comic would be kind of a nightmare for me in the last week of print because our our snp group our standards and practices would just be flagging every page going what is this background element you know erase this name the clint eastwood thing definitely would have to come out um so i feel like in this era you were things were a lot looser. I mean, even on the cover, that's the Chrysler building, which we cannot put on a cover. Interesting, why? Uh, it's some kind of trademark issue. Um, yeah. Fascinating, I didn't know that. Yep. Yeah, at, when we um, when I did Web Weaver, uh, the fashion show takes place, I, I said a vessel-like structure. The vessel is that big building in um, Hudson Yards in New York, and they ran it up the chain and we were allowed to show it once. We could show it as scene setting, do the actual vessel, but we couldn't show it more than once or it would become an issue. I, it's so dumb, y'all. Our legal department, <laughs> I love them. There's not very many of them. They work really hard, but like they're very cautious. And sometimes it's very frustrating because you're like, I, I had to take lyrics out of a comic last week. It was a Teeny Marie song from 1980 and it was two lives. And I had to take it out. And I was like, I'm, guys, I'm pretty sure Teeny Marie, who is dead, is not going to sue us for this. It's going to be okay. <laughs> Lyrics are such a nightmare in, in publishing. And I tell everyone I know, like, if you're, th if you want to put like a, just don't do it. Just don't do it. Like, just avoid unless it. it is the most plot crucial thing in the world to your book. Just don't do it. Um, I also just had a memory of when I was an intern part of my, at Marvel, part of my job was running around and getting covers signed off on, which I'm sure is not even done physically anymore. Not 
but physically, no. yeah we were at that and you know marvel's moved offices 10 times since then but um, at the time we had like two floors and so i was always running up and down up and down to get different people to sign off on it and it, it was some sort of daredevil book and very last second the artist had included kind of you know like a photoshop filtered new york city shot and partially because of the chrysler building we had to strike it and the cover looks very bare without it because it was too late to do anything else so instead of having this like uh you know foreground figure and the big city shot you just have a foreground figure and some red <laughs> uh i'm just gonna shake this tree and see what happens taking the three dancing couples uh how would these two do as a couple flash thompson and Jean gray not Boo. well at all yeah <laughs> uh Gene is way too emotionally mature for Flash. He's come a long way, but uh, yeah, especially in this era. Uh, Iceman and Gwen Stacy? <laughs> <laughs> Some obvious logistical problems there. <laughs> she, needs green, it, she needs green hair. <laughs> she would 1000% agree to be a beard, though. Like, I could definitely see that. Yeah. Uh, and weirdly, the one that I could kind of see working is Beast and Mary Jane, but maybe not. <laughs> no, she wouldn't suffer that fool. Never mind. I changed. Nah, no. She'd pity him for a while. Yeah, <laughs> I think MJ's standards are too high, though. He's he's a little bit too nerdy and a little bit too broke. Oh, that's fun. Uh, okay, Jason, will you take the next five pages for us? Sure. One of the things I want to mention about uh, the setup for this book is the fact that um, Craven's calling Spider-Man a mutant. One of the things that drove me nuts as a kid was like. Everyone hates the mutants, but why does everybody love Captain America or the Hulk? Why wouldn't they just assume they're mutants too, you know? Like they have powers. Uh, Unless they were told they're not mutants, but... I've given this some thought. I think uh, if you are Spider-Man, anybody could become Spider-Man. You just have to be bit by the spider. Uh, sure. it, it's something that you could become. But mutants, there's this idea of like, they're going to take over humanity. It's the, They're going to inherit the earth. They're putting me in danger. So someone with powers could be frightening. But for mutants, it's they're going to take what we are and steal it or take sure. it away. It's almost like people's fear of immigrants. You know, uh, like people's fear of immigrants or, or straight people's fear of queer people. It, it almost kind of goes to that space for me. Sure. But the average Marvel citizen does not know Spider-Man got his powers by being bitten by a spider. They just know this guy's got freaky powers. <laughs> but it always drove me nuts. Like, why? And even if they, even if like Captain America went on the news and said like, hey, I got my powers from the U.S. government, like, you know, a proper superhero does. <laughs> why would anybody believe that? Especially nowadays. No one would believe that. It's that's fake news. He's a mutant. Get Speaking of believing stuff, was anyone else reading like Wizard Magazine and stuff when they did that, when Marvel did the prank of Spider-Man's joining the X-Men? Does anyone remember this? Uh-uh. I, I think I do remember that. In 1999, I think it was in the pages of Wizard. I could be wrong. Maybe Wizard just covered it. But Marvel did an April Fool's Day prank where they said Spider-Man was joining the X-Men and they even had a suit drawn up with a big X on the forehead. And, you know, I was yeah. nine, nine or ten years old at the time. So I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> we could never do that now. We would get eviscerated. It'd be yeah. horrible. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, uh, Jason, you want to keep us going? Yeah, okay. So um, uh, Mary Jane agrees to uh, dance with Flash. And then I think that's the point where Angel tries his hand at picking up uh, Mary Jane and Gwen and uh, Hank and Bobby follow behind. Um, and he gives him a cocky speech about being uh, rich. 
And of course they shoot him down and decide to go dance with Hank and Bobby instead. And then um, Harry gets very animatedly angry about them dancing with his uh, girlfriend. <laughs> he makes, there's a, there's a shot of Harry on uh, the digital page 12, where he looks like, I don't know if you guys know who Richard Kind is, the actor. <laughs> Oh, making yeah. like a great life. Oh my <laughs> god! Um, he's very angry that they're dancing with them. Um, and then uh, he goes. Uh, he calls Hank Bigfoot, which is great. <laughs> Harry's gonna like show him who's boss. He's gonna settle his hash. And uh, that's when Craven breaks in from like the. Uh, he's in like like the catwalk. Like have you ever been like a potbelly sandwich shop? He's in that like little catwalk where the uh, <laughs> where the acoustic guitarist plays up there. He like and slams the door hard enough to shatter the glass on it. <laughs> yeah, so dramatic. And then what's great is he um he grabs a beatnik <laughs> and threatens him. So he gets some great. I'm, I'm sure that like Christos Gage had a lot of fun just writing like sixty stereotypes of like the beatnik. Like, hey man, you got some bad vibes. He's like, I'm gonna snap your neck, up. and he's like, chill out, dude. You want some tea? <laughs> <laughs> How about a nice herbal tea? Um, and then at that point, um, Peter runs in the bathroom and I didn't get this at first. I had to read it a couple of times because Peter's going to change. And then um, Angel starts screaming about having to pee or he says he has a weak bladder. And I was confused what was going on there. Maybe because I didn't realize like, oh, at the time they still had secret identities too. So he, he was going to change as well. But at first I was like, why is Angel just yelling that he has a weak bladder in the middle of this fight scene? <laughs> but then I picked up and I was like, oh, okay, they're, they're going to change too. So he locks the door so the X-Men can to change in the bathroom. So Cyclops asks, he asks Gene to uh, put up a, a psychic barrier so they can get in their costumes. And then, um, yeah, and then they debut in their, uh, their, their second iteration costumes. And um, Iceman throws out a lot of ice puns as he goes after Craven. And at that point, um, Blob bursts through the door. Surprise! This is a great Blob. <laughs> this blob is spectacular it's like you're used to seeing like the rotund bob blob you know just with the big barrel chest belly but this is like an oozy kind of flowing blob like his 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 mass is just like undulating like pudding it, it, it's actually a, probably a more realistic blob to be honest but he, it is. he can't fit through the door and he's like they better have brownies here i'm starving <laughs> yeah. Now, is the blob, I know he's big, but is this thing that he's hungry too? Because, like, his mutant power is to be thick like that. But that's not based on the fact that he's eating a ton. He's just naturally, like, that thick. I, uh, just, like, I, I feel like they're painting him with a stereotypical brush that he's also hungry. I do monthly character-focused episodes where I'll read a character's whole chronology, and then we'll do, like, a big maxi episode on him. I did this about Blob a few months back. And for the first, like, hundred times he's appeared, it's just all fat jokes. Like the yeah. characters calling him Tubby and Fatso and Lardo. And like that, it's just like pun after pun after pun with no character development at all. Uh, and I think Christos Gage is almost just trying to capture that because that's how they treated the blob in the 60s. But he's drawn, you're right, it's but it's much more pudding like here, which is not the way he's normally drawn, <laughs> with rare exceptions. He's he's he can't fit through the door here. That's not a that's not a thing we see with the blob most times. Can we stop saying pudding? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not handling pudding well in this context. He looks like when pudding gets a like a skin on the top, <laughs> where you can tap it and it will jiggle. But poor Fred. 
<laughs> yeah, he's not drawn well here. I mean, I get the interpretation, but that's my least favorite part of this issue is the way they portray Blob. I also yeah. don't. I, I get what you what he was trying to do, like you're saying, but I I don't like the fat jokes. Obviously, it doesn't <laughs> no. doesn't work. Spider Man webs his mouth closed and says, "Uh uh-uh, uh, big boy, a moment on the lips, a lifetime on the hips." Oof. Which I know is a phrase, but it's very creepy. I don't know why. <laughs> I always loved the the like kingpin stories where, um, you know, early on he's just like a big kind of fat dude, and that's sort of part of it. And then as that character develops, you have that moment where Spider Man runs into him, and he's like, "No, I'm muscle. Like this is all <laughs> muscle, yeah. boy." Um, so uh, yeah, I love it when occasionally you get a fat person who just gets to be fat and also badass that would be nice and blob is crazy powerful he's he's such a powerful character i i want to write a blob story i could do a whole like 48 page let's talk about the blob <laughs> i really love this character it's also interesting that he picked blob is because the conceit of this this moment in the book is that craven needed a mutant ally surprises the blob why the blob <laughs> if anyone you could go to <laughs> I mean, he's fun. He's fun for the story, but thinking about Craven's motive, like why a blob? When you put this into Blob's chronology, this is between him getting captured by the Sentinels and before he gets captured by the Secret Empire. He's not. He's not happy with humans around this time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Steve, will you take us uh, through the end of the issue? Yeah. So at that point, uh, Spider-Man and the X-Men have teamed up and Cyclops uh, yells the classic catchphrase X-Men attack, I guess, still workshopping <laughs> a, a better uh, Avengers Assemble corollary at that point. Uh, and they blast Blob right out of the cafe. Um, I can't get the word pudding out of my head now. So <laughs> thanks for that. Also, um, that's not how Blob's powers work. If he touches the ground, you can't move him. It doesn't make sense. They blasted him through the wall. <laughs> Yeah, they make kind of a distinction that, oh, he's planted his feet now. And I was like, well, he wasn't floating before. <laughs> like, his like, his feet were were planted. Uh, that for but, sure sounds like Steve Wacker going, oh, shit, it's too late to fix this. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no prize. Correction um, the fact. We do get a really fun uh, fight scene here where everyone's using their powers. This is an era where, you know, we weren't talking about Omega mutants and all this sort of stuff yet. Characters still have limitations, uh, you know, fairly uh, uh, low tier limitations. So this is like a fun alleyway fight with the Blob and Kraven teaming up against the X-Men. Um, Jean's got her telekinesis, but it's not super duper powerful. Iceman's icing up. Um, but Craven uses his nipple lasers uh, <laughs> as as they are situated over his his own human nipples uh, via the lion vest eyes to melt Iceman's ice right off of him because this was before Bobby was turning into solid ice. Uh, you guys, so he gets you guys. Craven the Hunter has nipple lasers. I just needed to say that <laughs> distinctively for everyone to hear. That is a thing from the '60s books that they are bringing back. He has nipple lasers. Sometimes it shoots like tranquilizer gas, but it's full on nipple lasers. And this, he's a fembot from Austin Powers. <laughs> <laughs> and then he he uh, you know lightly cuts Iceman to shock his nervous system. Um, Angel goes in for a dive bomb, but Craven's got him matched already with a spear uh then it's hank's turn at bat and he gets sliced by craven i do feel like we don't normally see craven with like dangerous fingernails that's not really his thing that's 
a little more saber-toothy. Um, but he does slice Hank right in the stomach with his uncut nails. Uh, and then Cyclops has had enough, and he blasts Craven. Uh, that gives Bobby a chance to ice up again, uh, and they freeze the blob in place. I do like the moment where, um, and with Spider-Man's webby help, of course, I do like the moment when um, the Iceman's like, how are the cops going to hold him when that melts? And Spider-Man says, that's their problem. <laughs> <laughs> also, that's blob, a... <laughs> blob is covered in webs and ice, and he goes, come on, guys, it's getting him on pants. This is nasty. <laughs> <laughs> This is not Fred J. Dukes' finest hour. That, no, that's for not. sure. Um, and then Craven chooses the better part of Valor and, and retreats. Uh, Hank gets in a corpulent comrade uh, dig at, at uh, the blob. Hank is in fine form this whole issue, really. I think Christos clearly had a lot of fun writing um, Hank's classic dialogue, which was with a lot of... Um, kind of artifice and, and puns and, and high-minded uh, play on words. So they have a moment where they're all regrouping and, and uh, you know, touching base as fellow teen heroes. Uh, and Spider-Man says, you know, I'm not much of a joiner. I mean, come on, can you really imagine me on a team? Which I think this does probably line up within the tail end of his time as an Avenger. Like this would have been yeah. around the same time that Bendis was coming off the book. So Spidey had finally become a team player at this point. Um, But, you know, they have their moments and and (laughs) Spidey... It's funny, too, because it's such a classic Spider-Man, but he becomes a little bit more of a jerk in this final scene, saying, like, you know, the the blob is the cop's problem, and sorry, Gwen, you know, we got separated. Ha ha. Ain't I a stinker? (laughs) It's like, yeah, your girlfriend probably thinks you're dead, man. (laughs) Like... (laughs) You ran off when a when a giant mutant and a, a nipple laser attacked. Um, then the moment that did really take me off guard because I didn't realize that this series was going to jump through eras is Craven meeting in an alleyway with Mister Sinister, who of course is a much later addition than than the nineteen sixties. Um, but we have a really ornate design for Mister Sinister as he collects DNA that Craven had been uh, sampling secretly from all the X Men. And then Sinister also gives him a proposal that he may have some ideas of what to do with his DNA, Craven's. And that's the the ominous note we end the issue on. Uh, Did any of you read the rest of the series? Not yet, but I plan to. Well, can I spoil it for you? (laughs) (laughs) This leads into, it's four different eras. uh, They're kind of in different time periods, recognizing that Sinister is a danger. So the next one is like Morlocks era, you know, Dazzlers in the book, et cetera. And they fight the Marauder clones and they're going after like, uh, they realize Sinister has captured the X-Men's DNA. And the book after that, they're teaming up with Ben Riley and they fight Carnage. And then in the fourth book, it's kind of an unsatisfying X. Uh, <laughs> Sinister has created a clone using the X-Men's DNA, a little bit of Carnage and mostly Craven the Hunter. And there's a one-off villain named Xraven, it's the name Craven with an X at the beginning. So Xraven <laughs> attacks the X-Men and Spider-Man and then ends up going after Sinister at the end. And we've never seen Xraven, Xraven, <laughs> I don't even know how to say it. We've never seen him again. So the fun part of this book is the different eras, but the payoff at the end is Xraven. <laughs> so there's a, there's a little bit of spoilers for you. I don't know. It could be. It could be time for his comeback. Uh, someone needs to email Kieran right now and say, "Hey, did, did you catch this sinister yet?" We, we need Zraven back. 
Uh, were uh, Sarah and Jason, were you guys surprised to see Sinister at the end? Uh, I was, yeah. Um, surprising. And uh, I guess also because he's so relevant now that I was like, oh, suddenly this was very modern. Um, <laughs> but that whole sequence kind of made me laugh a little bit. And I don't know why this stuck out to me so much. But he's holding, Craven is holding up the DNA that he's collected. And it's already in these glowing green test tubes. And he's like, yeah, I collected the skin and blood samples. But he's he's clearly already synthesized them into something like very comic booky. Uh, it just makes me laugh a lot. Like, I don't know. Uh, Sinister does have a penchant for hiring people to do things sometimes. He did this with Gambit, right? Uh, uh, and you do notice if you go back during the fight, you'll notice that Craven has managed to cut each of the X-Men. And so they're all bleeding. So that, that was his goal. The reason he gets on the news to say Spider-Man's a mutant is to lure the X-Men into a trap so that he can connect, collect their DNA for Mr. Sinister. Uh, and this is one of Craven's earliest canonical appearances. Uh, and then Sinister, of course, is very behind the scenes in this era, but uh, still kind of manipulating things like he's been doing with the Summerses for years. Uh, <laughs> what did you guys think of this book overall? Did you have fun? Is there any criticisms? It's really fun. Um, it's It's really... The whole premise is really interesting to me because we really struggle with time periods um, as an editorial group because, you know, if you go back and set a Spider-Man story in the 1960s, well, according to current Marvel continuity, he wasn't alive in the 1960s. Like, he became a superhero in roughly the early to mid-2000s. <laughs> um, and so when you do this, you're you're kind of deliberately breaking how it works um and it's something i'm always a little leery of because it's really fun to dip into those time periods but then you have to be like how do i set this up and justify it or do i not do i just go ahead and lean into it and go fans will get it it will be fine which i think is what they did here and it does work because um, they do find all of those familiar pieces um like we were talking about throughout the voices are really good um christmas definitely has a, a handle on everybody's speaking patterns um so yeah i think it's really fun overall and for the fans of the show go back to the tom Brevoort episode where i say tom what is the sliding time scale <laughs> <laughs> uh jason do you have any opinions on the book as a whole yeah i thought it was fun too um the one i don't know if it's criticism it's just a comment that everyone's a little bit jerky in the book <laughs> like i feel like flash is kind of jerky Peter's a little jerky. Everyone's a little jerky in that in that scene. Um, I mean, maybe that was like kind of the sixties that you gotta amp up the um the emotions to get them across. But yeah, everyone's a little bit of a jerk. Even Mary Jane and Gwen are a little bit of a jerk to like Harry <laughs> and Peter. Should make him jealous. But My overall, yeah, I thought it was fun. My biggest criticism, and this is a very 60s thing, is they get to the place and everyone's like, ooh, I'm going to grab that girl. You're mine. No, look, there's a new girl. She's mine now. Yeah. <laughs> like that possessiveness of the boys toward the girls. They have to kind of roll their yeah. eyes and play along uh, when all of those girls are too good for all of those boys collectively. <laughs> <laughs> it's got a yeah. little bit of a Archie, Betty, and Veronica vibe to it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Steve, yeah. any final thoughts? Yeah, no, I mean, well, like Sarah said, the the timeline is such a funny thing that you kind of like can't think too much about where you go crazy, especially uh, the, the real sick realization for me is is figuring out that most of the characters in are younger than me. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, if, if I think too hard about it, uh, they're almost all younger than me, which is not a cool feeling. Uh, but no, I love that stuff like this can exist kind of on the fringes of continuity and you can do an issue that jumps from the 60s to the 80s to the 90s to the 2000s and, and not have to worry too much about 
why is Spider-Man not 80 years old or whatever? Um, and, it, you know, like you said, there is that funny, uh, Christos was clearly having a, a ball doing an authentic 60s, but authentic 60s also means like fat jokes and misogyny. <laughs> so you, you have to be willing to uh, approach the comic in good faith and, and know that it's not actually advocating for the jerky attitudes uh, held within. Well, Although if you- I will say that if we made this comic now, I don't think that we would let those same things in, to be honest. As an editor, no, I, I don't think so either. Yeah. Like, we <laughs> can do it without them. those things. Let's yeah. find a different way, sure, sure. Well, I, if you I, have nothing... Oh, I'm sorry, Steve, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I did keep thinking, like, this would not... <laughs> this would not get published in the same form today. Um, yeah. But it was a lot of fun to read as a, an artifact of its time, looking back at an artifact of a prior time. Uh, we compare this to Steve Fox's recent use of Avalanche scoping out the guy at the next urinal over. It's a very different. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, if you got nothing else from today's episode, when you have people say, you know, what's a, what's an obscure comic book fact? You like, do you remember the time Mr. Sinister cloned the X-Men and Craven the Hunter and made Craven? What a genuine delight to hang out with each of you today. Thank you. Thank you for your time and talents and insights. Uh, it's so great to see you, Steve and Jason and Sarah. It's such an honor to get to know you both. Um, as we are wrapping up, uh, we'll go in the same order of introductions, uh, Sarah, Steve, and then Jason. Uh, where can people find you online? And is there anything you'd like to plug coming out recognizing this episode's going to be released on November 28th? Yeah, um, you can, at least for now, still find me on Twitter as uh, Mighty <laughs> Breadstead. I, don't, I can't promise how long that's going to be the case. Uh, and I'm on Instagram as well, although I will admit I barely use Instagram. Um, so in the future, I don't know. Social media is a mystery. Um, but coming up uh, at the end of this month on uh, November 30th, I've got two projects coming out that I'm really happy with. Um, the second issue of Charlie Jane Anders taking over the New Mutants title. Uh, so issue number 32 is coming out. Um, that came from the Marvel Voices Pride book. Uh, Charlie Jane created a character um, with the artist uh, Ted Rowe or Ted Brandt and Rose Stein. Uh, <laughs> Escapade! And, yeah, uh, and we brought her over into New Mutants. And Charlie Jane is just a phenomenal writer. Um, the artist, I think, is great. Al- Alberto Albuquerque has a really quirky but like clear and fun style. Um, so I'm very excited for that book. Uh, And then on the Marvel Unlimited app, the very first installment of a a story called Marvel Voices, The Family Snicked uh, will come out. And that's going to be a six part story by Stephanie Williams and Alan Robinson. Oh, yay. It's all of the Wolverines going on a family road trip, like 1980s style. Uh, We did a a very (laughs) 80s, 90s logo for it. Um, So that story is just really fun and silly uh, and kind of like a perfect vertical format uh, kind of book. And I'm a huge Stephanie Williams fan. That's wonderful. Yeah, I didn't know she was doing it. I love her to death. And with Alan, my my, uh, unlimited collaborator. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Fantastic, Sarah. Thank you so much. Uh, Steve. Yeah, um, people can find me at Steve underscore Fox on Twitter, but I am really hoping that site has imploded by the time this episode goes live. Um, You can otherwise find me at stevefox.com, and that's F-O-X-E. Oh, man. So in December, right before Christmas, uh, the X-Men annual comes out, which I got to do with um, Andrea DeVito um, and Sebastian Chang. And I'm immensely proud of it. 30 pages of of X-Men action. Really grateful to get to do that. 
I think around the time at the end of the year, you'll get an announcement about one of my first creator-owned series coming out um, in 2023. Um, and also, if you're looking for holiday gifts, uh, this is already out, but I did a Justice League Saves Christmas children's book <laughs> that you can go and get. That's my one little foray into the DC Comics universe so far. Um, yeah, no, I think that, that kind of does me for the end of the year. Fantastic. I can't wait. Uh, and then Jason. Yeah, well, I want to say to my fellow guests, um, I really loved uh, House of 92. And oh, um, I really love the Fox books, the Alien books, the Predator books. They're so good. And I it, love this is going to sound too. like a backhanded compliment, but like for a licensed book, I was so impressed. I was, you know, you come in with a pre-existing notion in your head, but I love them. I think they're great. I know what you but, mean. Um, Thank you. <laughs> uh, you can find me at Jason Muir, M-U-H-R, on Twitter and Instagram, as long as it's still there. Um, and then uh, as far as comics, um, yeah, uh, By the Horns, our second miniseries called Dark Earth is the... Well, let's see. At this point in time in mid-November, uh, we'll have re released this first six issues of the uh, second arc. And then um, the book's taking a little bit of a break while we uh, uh, bank some issues. And we're back in March with issue seven. And that particular miniseries is going to run 12 issues. So we'll be monthly starting in March. Hmm. And uh, yeah, if you want to, you know, if you're interested in the book, um, the first volume is out uh, by the Horns Volume 1 that collects the first eight issues. And then um, we're gonna, the second arc is going to be broken up in two trades. So the, the first trade of the second arc will be out in the spring. And then we're going to put out the next six issues. And then the, the next trade will be out after that. It is so phenomenal uh, collaborating from people with different skill sets uh, and kind of learning these different tricks of the trade and just hearing what you're all doing and the passion you have in your voices. Thank you. This has been wonderful. Uh, lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. Uh, I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos. The three of you are welcome to add me, uh, but uh, ultimately <laughs> you can just reach me through the podcast. Otherwise, I am Gray Malkin PP like podcast on Twitter or Gray Malkin underscore lane on Instagram. The next episode after this is going to be the joint criminal trial of The Vanisher and Eunice the Untouchable, which which is a ton of fun. We have a great cast uh, as the jury in that episode. And uh, I do character-focused uh, Patreon episodes. Uh, Steve Fox and I did uh, Solar a few months ago. Uh, right around the time we put this out, I've got a focused episode on the character Squid Boy with Squid Boy's creator, Chuck Osted, uh, which is a, it's a lot of nerdy fun, but also uh, a really wholesome and healing conversation about child abuse, weirdly. <laughs> so uh, make sure to check that out if, you, if you're interested. Uh, thank you, everybody. Uh, I had a great time today. We will see you back here next time on Grey Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grey Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane.